the presenting sponsor of Top Ducks is Netflix, now presenting the documentary series Harry and Meghan. From award-winning director Liz Garbus, the Boston Globe calls Harry and Meghan a fascinating look into a profoundly rarefied way of life. Emmy eligible for outstanding documentary or nonfiction series. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to Nancy Schwartzman, the director and producer, and Ray DeLeon, the producer and main subject of Victim Suspect. Victim Suspect is a feature documentary that follows Ray DeLeon, a reporter working at the Center for Investigative Reporting, as she uncovers some really troubling findings. She discovers a bunch of cases nationwide that involve women reporting their sexual assault to the police only to be accused of fabricating their allegations. These women are then charged with crimes, sometimes facing years in prison. And that's Nancy Schwartzman describing what Victim Suspect is about. The film had its world premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. And just a bit of background on Nancy and Ray. Nancy Schwartzman's debut feature, Roll Red Roll, from 2019, exposed the notorious Steubenville, Ohio, teen sexual assault case. Ray, as you'll see in the film, is a reporter and producer for Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. The topic of victim suspect really puts a pit in your stomach right from the beginning. And that feeling really persists throughout. And it's because it's the ultimate story of the tables being turned on women who are victims. And then somehow due to the malfeasance and laziness and whatever professional incentives or misincentives that police have, become suspects in their own cases. And it's really horrifying. It seems like such an obvious investigative story to pursue. But as the film points out, there was very little to go on with these cases early on, simply because they involved victims, alleged victims, who supposedly recounted their stories, which is why they landed in prison themselves for filing false police reports. It's all very convoluted. It's extremely upsetting. And it's really brought home when you see these women being interrogated and really bullied and pursued in the interrogation videos that play a prominent role in the film. As an investigative reporter, Ray's job is to follow the story wherever it may lead. So this is a film that's also about journalism and investigative reporting that takes you inside the newsroom and gives you a sense of what it's like to be an investigative reporter. This film is really engaging and powerful. Victim Suspect is currently streaming on Netflix. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with Nancy Schwartzman and Ray DeLeon, a victim suspect. Nancy Schwartzman and Ray DeLeon, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Nancy, your feature documentary debut is the 2018 film Roll Red Roll, which examined the Steubenville High School rape case in Steubenville, Ohio, what led up to it and its aftermath. 
that film uncovered the ingrained rape culture at the heart of the incident. This film, Victim Suspect, tracks a series of disturbing cases in which victims of sexual assault are not believed by police, who then turn on the victims and charge them with filing a false police report. How do you see the connection between these two films, if there is one? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Certainly, there's a few connections. In Roll Red Roll, the film's really looking at rape culture, and that includes systemic beliefs, that includes institutions that support one gender over another, like schools, teams, law enforcement, these sort of institutions that enable gender-based violence. And certainly you see that in victim suspects with law enforcement and their biases that a huge percentage of women make up being raped, which we know just absolutely isn't true. And that's a rape myth, right? And then there's the system that enables police to prosecute. Those are DAs, those are mayor's offices, those are all these other networks and systems that enable really violence against women and queer people. So that's one connection. Another one is social media. I would say Roll Red Roll really exposed how social media both helped and harmed this case. And in our film, social media is a real harm to a lot of the victims because law enforcement will post their police report as if it's fact, right? And it's taken as fact. And then journalists will take that and report on it and then splash these young people's images all over the media and then social media just swarms them. So it was a kind of similar ecosystem in both films. And then lastly, I was really inspired by, in my first film, the sort of outsider blogger who was working outside the system, working in tandem with journalists underground to get the story out. And I was really moved by her tenacity. And I think there's a real similarity. Ray is obviously a journalist, right, who has byline and works within an organization. But that same kind of tenacity and desire to expose, I think, carries over in both of the films and is really inspiring. Yeah, that kind of reporting is germane to uncovering these issues. And certainly you partnering with a journalist in this case makes a lot of sense. How did you first become aware of the reporting that Ray was doing? How did you meet? And why did you want to collaborate on the making of this film? Actually, Ray found me, which was really cool. I think coming off the heels of Roll Red Roll and having this content that was similar, I met Ray when there had been a lot of reporting already done and some initial contact with certain potential subjects. And it's such a big ask to get someone to go from speaking to a journalist, possibly off the record, sharing a story, to then being open to like being in a movie. So that was always going to be sort of a big ask. But once Ray had made it clear that they had done the appropriate like FOIAs and requesting records and that the police footage that you see in the film was actually accessible and usable to make a film with, I was like, oh my gosh, that is just, in their own words, we can analyze this behavior and we can really look at it and not speculate. That's what really kind of inspired me to make a film was being able to use that material and the power of Ray, the journalist, who was able to access that material. And for you, Ray, when did you first 
Nancy role red role? And what impressions did you form of Nancy as a director in terms of how she framed the story, her fact finding, how she worked with the journalist in that situation, her relationship to the subjects and so on? So I remember the first time I met Nancy, it weirdly enough was when I had just gotten some new police interrogation footage. So we were sitting in this conference room and I was like, here, I just got this thing. Do you want to watch it with me? I've never seen it before. And she's like, yeah. So we're watching it. And it was like stunning because this was footage of a detective walking in, telling the alleged victim, like, got you here in a ruse. I don't believe you were raped. I think you lied. And she stood her ground and she's like, I did not lie. I was raped. And what we watched in front of us was basically the third time she was going to be charged with false reporting because every time she maintained her story, they said that was another lie. It was awful. And then she's handcuffed and it's like this horrible 10 to 15 minutes of watching her like having to take off her boots and her jacket. It's just weird. So we watched it together and I feel like together we both were like, oh, that's wow. That's that's this is very it was just it was just awful to see it in real time and watch it together not edited but just like oh we're watching all of the silence all of the exchanged looks that are happening all of the like blood draining from her face it was just so moving and so Nancy and I kept in touch and yes I watched Roll Red Roll and then I even watched her other film that she did chronicling Nancy's own experience with this as a survivor and I was really moved by it, knowing all the work that she had done in this field that was really important to me because for me, here I am talking to all of these young people, mostly women. I wanted to know that I was going to put them in really good hands of someone who was going to treat them with compassion, empathy, and also sadly, but importantly, like a very shared understanding of what they had gone through. And how did you guys actually figure out how to work together, what the ground rules might be, or just the understanding of, you know, Ray, you're doing your reporting, and there may be situations, for instance, where you don't want to have a camera present, or you need the intimacy of just meeting somebody for the first time one-on-one. -on -one. But how did you figure out to be a team where you would each kind of get what you needed, you for your reporting, Ray, and you for your film, Nancy. Yes. So before we started filming together, we had the opportunity at least to like really just get very deep into the different storylines that we were going to follow. So that was already being developed because we had the interrogation footage. We had had long Zoom conversations with some of these people before we started filming with them. So there were relationships being built I feel like I was learning things and sharing it at the same time that I was learning them. So we were very much on a journey together, which was really nice. I feel like whenever I got something, I was forwarding it to Nancy and my editor in cohesion, sort of like, hey, check this out. I got this. Or I'd find articles and like, this is interesting. And maybe it's a theme we can incorporate or something to think about. So that was a really nice experience to be able to keep reporting, finding new information, sharing it with Nancy so that she can incorporate it into the narrative that she was thinking about how to tell it. And then at a certain point, of course, it became clear, and Nancy could talk more about this, that I needed to be in the film because there was no one else who was going to be able to tell all the things. And Nancy, how did you go about determining kind of the best creative process whereby the two of you could collaborate on this project and you could 
make sure that the film would be serviced. From one perspective, it was great because Ray is such a good first contact with any source that may be sensitive, right? You get in the middle of production, you're in the middle of editing, you're moving fast. That is the absolute worst way to approach a sensitive victim, right? So having Ray as the person who's going to set that up, keep the relationship going, and even inquire very gently, are you open to sharing your story is like such a benefit because I'm sure people listening to the podcast have worked on many projects. And the worst thing you want to do is be in production scramble mind when speaking to someone in a sensitive situation, right? So Ray was always like so grounding in her outreach, which is just so key. So then we would have the sort of next level layer of the process of like, okay, you're willing to talk to Ray, of course. You know that she's been talking to other people. Here's our big picture kind of analysis of what we're seeing. Are you open to being filmed? So then it would be something of a handoff. And she and I were both holding these like different relationships, case details, case relationships, like cracking down various documents to prove one thing or another, raise like on that because it serves the reporting, it serves the film, all the forwards Ray did. Sometimes it was like, wow, that's over here. A film, it's like, of course I want to go follow that story over here, but like we can't. So Ray is just gathering all the plankton type of thing. And then we're sort of figuring out what the pieces are. So it's just so helpful to always have Ray to be the person who would be a touch point with subjects. It's like, immeasurable because it's so sensitive. And then when Ray became part of the film, that was like a very interesting, always your editors are always going to want more than they're given, right? There's always that like, oh, right. When you go to the edit room, it's all about what you don't have and what you didn't get, you know? So there's always this ask for more, more, more. And of course, me as a curious director, I want to see how can we visibly show Ray's struggle? Can we see her at the chiropractor cracking her back? You know, it was like, no, we talked about it a lot. What can we show? What do you want to keep private? We have to show a little bit of who you are. But I was really conscious of the gender piece of it. I definitely want to know who Ray is. And that's genderless. That's just who is Ray as a person? How does she blow up steam? Who else is in her life? What does she do outside of work? Those are basic questions. But there was this idea that we had to show the softer side? Or do we need to explain why Ray is being neutral or why Ray is being a reporter doing her job? Because the audience might have expectations of who she is because she's a woman and she's supposed to hug someone. Or I'm like, they would not be asking a white male journalist to go into their dark soul and express themselves. No, they want to see someone doing their job well, sometimes getting frustrated and sometimes getting moved. Like that's just very human. So that was something we wanted to like really balance and be mindful of in peering over Ray's shoulder, as it were, as she's doing her journalistic work and also getting a little bit of insight of what makes her tick. And one of the things that we do see, one of the stories that you track is really Ray's development as a reporter and how this is the first sort of juicy investigative story that she can really call her own. Except for the pothole story that was so juicy. Yes. For those who haven't seen the film yet, there's a very juicy pothole story that I believe Ray broke and made a major impact on <laughs> yeah. people. In what city was that? <laughs> oh, Northridge, California. <laughs> there you go. 
Yeah. There's one fewer pothole in Northridge, California, due to the right. investigative work of Juan Ray de Leon. <laughs> one pothole at a time. But I think it is a compelling story that you're telling of this reporter who is maybe more junior on the staff at the Center for Investigative Reporting and is really getting her footing there and figuring out, here's how you navigate the corridors of getting a story approved by the staff and endorsed by the team and doing all the things you need to do to get the green light and to get the support, the institutional support that's necessary to move forward with your work. And along with that is the psychological aspect of why that's a fulfilling pursuit for someone, how they learn from it and grow from it. Ray, what was it like for you to kind of bring your own story into this? Well, it was new for me. That's something that like Nancy kept pulling and pulling. And so I remember thinking, I was like, well, I have these old videos from college. I don't think you'd want them. And then she's like, no, I would want them. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so they're on like little mini DV tape. Some of them were broken. Um, so we had to like ingest those and figure it out. Yeah, I definitely like was realizing more and more as we went how my story was becoming a bigger theme in the documentary. Of course, I was a part of it. You know, I was contributing to that. It became funny at certain points because, you know, it was like, okay, they're coming over to my apartment to film. And I didn't want my partner in it. So I locked himself away in a room, but my cat could be in it. That was like, you know, I had my, my lines that I was drawing. There certainly weren't any surprises, but it definitely was like funny as it kept going. And I realized, oh, wow, okay, they are going to use the video from college and the pothole story is going to film. And, you know, it was more funny than anything. So, Nancy, we're introduced to four cases here in the film. As the film's director, how did you decide which cases you were going to focus on and how much narrative weight to give each of the four stories? Yeah, I mean, that was definitely like a very story-driven group decision with the editors. Look, we'll start backwards. Diane came late. Diane's case arrived on Ray. Ray found her, chased it down. It was happening. So that obviously like almost came as we were structuring like mid-act two. So it was like, oh my God, here it is. This one's actually quite chronological. Let's go with it as it is, right? And that was so active and she's going to court and there's going to be outcomes. And it was really powerful and exciting because also we were bringing more expertise, sort of understanding the landscape, like Dr. Avalos. We knew her as a scholar, right? And that she's spoken about this quite a bit. A lot of her issue area focuses in England, but there she was. Ray, did we introduce Dr. Avalos to Melissa Hortachak, the attorney? Yeah, that sounds like that could have been right. Yeah, it was, there's like a matrix of all these people that I yeah. now it's hard to follow, but yeah, they're all connected. I, yeah, they knew about Detective Hirschman. So speaking of that matrix, right, you look at your court cases and then you look at the sort of outer layer of who are the experts. We didn't want to bring in outside the experts. That's always like a drag, in my opinion. It's more like who's intensively connected to this work. And Carl Hirschman had done work connected to Megan Rondini's case. So he's already like deep in that case. And then it turns out he's going to be on Diane's case by chance, not by chance, but because he's an expert. And it was like, oh, wow. So that's really linking those two cases. Look, Megan's case is such 
a tragedy. Megan is not here. We're never going to get to speak to her. We have to sit with that case and do it justice because it's connected to the same police department. It's a year prior to what happened to Emma, which is galling. They both sat in the same chair. What's always really important to me is that we're able to see perpetrators and not just focus on victims, right? So in Megan's case, we have the alleged perpetrator TJ Bunn on tape, and we can look and watch him. So although that case was sort of done and Megan's not with us, it felt really important for those reasons. Geographically, same police department. Oh, my gosh, we can watch TJ Bunn on tape. Carl Hirschman's involved. And then Emma... Her case had been going on for a long time. She was 18 years old. It's Tuscaloosa. She has this incredible lawyer. And she's also just this incredible mouthpiece. And like she and Diane, when they met, like Emma's almost become a mentor to Diane. So she does feel a bit like the best voice to kind of lead us through the bigger picture of these cases. So it was really sort of a juggling act of who's available and who really wants to take this whose case has weight that we can follow, like Emma's pursuing justice, Diane's pursuing justice. Nikki Yovino, we don't really spend too much time with, but we get Detective Cotto. He's such a good character. We really talked about, do we include her so much? But it was worth it so that we could really look at how this law enforcement officer behaves and how that has a ripple effect. And he ended up going on camera with us. So it's not like one simple answer, but seeing how they organically connected with each other through either experts or location and who is still actively pursuing what's still in motion so that the film doesn't feel like a look back. It feels like something that you're following. So just for the audience sake, if they haven't seen the film, some of the people you've mentioned, there's Emma Mannion and Megan Rondini, who both were undergrads at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. So that's why the Tuscaloosa Police Department and personnel, including the sheriff, are involved in both of those stories. And then there's Carl Hirschman, who's a former San Diego police officer, who's now involved in the training of other police officers in terms of their questioning techniques of victims of sexual assault. And he ends up being a narrative thread that connects to some of these other stories that we see in the film. And then Dr. Lisa Avalos is the scholar in this field who has written about what happens when reporting rape is turned against victims and becomes a crime for which they are prosecuted. Lisa Avalos published a paper called The Chilling Effect. And we debated that as a title as well, because it really does create a chilling effect for other survivors, right? If law enforcement is going to arrest you or accuse you of lying, if you report your crime, that's going to create a chilling effect on survivors. So, Ray, you mentioned watching a police interrogation video with Nancy and just seeing everything going on in this video. Early on in the film, we see one such interrogation video in which Emma is interviewed by a police officer. It is really one of the most fascinating and disturbing parts of the film because you see unfolding over time how the officer uses manipulation to essentially break down Emma, to disbelieve her story, and it leads to a retraction of her story and then ultimately her arrest 
for filing a false police report. It's a very harrowing thing to watch as a viewer. I'm sure you had watched or were going to watch in the course of your reporting a lot of these videos. What did you take from seeing these videos about how this practice seemed to be repetitive and therefore systematic? Mm -hmm. I definitely took away several themes that I was noticing, which came out of this analysis that I did, but also just me watching so many of these. One theme I noticed, it happens with Emma, it happened with Nikki, it happened with a 12-year-old who was interrogated. There's this idea that an officer tells you like, okay, so the elements that you're describing are not technically what I would consider rape. So you were not raped. So this person is confused and they're like, okay. And then they agree in terms of like, I guess your definition, I wasn't raped, but that is not at all a recantation. That's not them saying that what happened to them wasn't a violation or it was consensual. It's just they have now heard it several times in different ways that, okay, what happened to you actually wasn't bad. They internalize that. It's very understandable. And then they agree with this person who has a lot of authority in this moment. I also noticed that you can ask a question three or four times and Probably by the fourth time, uh, you will get a different answer. If not, you're getting a different answer each time because that's how humans work. I saw cases of where people were too consistent. Officers didn't like that their written story matched too closely with the witnesses. And it just, no matter what, it seemed like they couldn't do it right for them because this detective had a level of suspicion and a theory. It just seemed like they were going to find a way to get this person to answer questions so that it matched the theory. These detectives like to say that they're in pursuit of the truth, that they're out for the truth. That's all they're doing. They're not doing anything else. They're not here to uh, persecute anyone, but they're just here for the truth. And what I heard was really not that at all. It was them doing a lot of the talking or it was questions that were not open-ended. They were very pointed. And I don't know how you get to the truth if you lie to someone to begin with. That was always something that stuck with me is that just creates a situation of confusion. They wouldn't show the evidence to people. You hear Emma, he says, we got this video of you. But he doesn't ever show her the video. Same thing with Nikki. There were so many different methods I was seeing again and again and again. And I knew they weren't best practices. I knew someone like Carl wouldn't have interviewed someone that way. It was so galling truly. And it really, it outraged me. So something that felt really important to do, which I tried to do on Roll Red Roll as well. This is such an awful topic and there's so much trauma like all over it. And it really depends on where you want to guide the audience to feel. And for me, I wanted people to be like outraged because walking away with how terrible everything is and how sad it is, it doesn't like incite you to action and like anger can be motivating. Watching the first video Ray and I watched together where he says, I got you here on a ruse. I was like, oh my goodness, straight from the horses. No, listen to that. And then I remember flying home from California and watching all of Megan Rondini and all of TJ Bunn and just being horrified. I was really adamant that there's material in there and it's everyone focuses on investigative beats, but there's a moment where the cop is joking with the potential suspect about his fishing trip. Oh, how was the fish chin? Oh, it's these little tells where you see 
these guys are all part of the same team. And really, wow, look at this camaraderie going on. And Megan's sitting there in the chair for three hours. Plus, her body's slumping over. She's cold. She hasn't slept. And these guys are joking about fishing. That says so much in itself. So where are those character moments to really look at and understand? And I just remember flying home and downloading and watching the whole thing and just being like, holy, holy. I remember early on, I was telling my dad about this project. And I was like, dad, they put an 18-year-old girl in handcuffs. You have video behind her back. And this little girl who said she's been raped and is at the police station, they put her in cuffs. And he was like, no, 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 that can't be right. No, they, I'm like, no, 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 they do. They do. And it's on tape. And there's a few girls they put in cuffs. It's insane. It's so extreme. So for me, always having the language that they use and being able to use that and the visuals is so powerful because any expert or anyone can sit and say how they remembered it, but here it is. All of those details felt so salient. It's like you can show without telling. And that's, I think, the best kind of filmmaking to me. Absolutely. The moments where I think it's Megan is left alone in the room. And she is just cowering in the corner. She's freezing. She's crying. She's upset. And you just see in those moments how incredibly exposed this person is, how vulnerable they are, and they are not going to get anything from the police that they really should be getting in order for the truth to come out. And then on the flip side, that scene you described about the officer talking to a suspect, TJ done and joking with him and his lawyer about fishing. That was so outrageous. I thought, oh, this must be a ruse. This is a ruse where he's trying to get him be all buddy-buddy so he can then ask him an incriminating question. And it's like, no, that's real. They are just good old boys having a chat about fishing. It's outrageous. Yeah. And I just want to point out that I was also really doing my best, truly, to give the officers benefit of the doubt. I'm like, okay, you could be doing this as a strategy. You could be buttering up a suspect. They think you're their friend and then you attack and you go in for the jugular. So I'm watching and I'm waiting for that to happen. And nope, it's done. You know, thank you so much for coming in. You're always so cooperative. See you later. So, yeah, I definitely like always waited for that because I'm like, all right, maybe they're going to flip it at some point. But that's not what happened. It was only being flipped on the reporting victim. This raises the question about why are they doing this? And there is a moment toward the end of the film, Ray, where you say, one question I keep coming back to is if the police aren't believing someone, why not just dismiss the case? Why go through the trouble of making arrests? You asked this of Detective Carl Hirschman, and he explains the mindset of police in this situation. And he says, if I'm the officer in that situation, I can get an arrest. I don't have to do a full investigation of the sexual assault. It's another case off my desk. These all seem to be sort of incentives for why these investigative officers are doing this. I couldn't help think that there was another reason too, which is misogyny. As Dr. Avalo says, it is young, vulnerable women who are being subjected to this. How big a factor would you say misogynistic attitudes, practices, and systems play in all of this? Yeah, a big role. I don't know what's in their minds, so I can't speak to that. But I do know what the comments say after the police publish their arrests. 
I will tell you that it goes over quite well for police. They are thanked by the public. The public says, thank you so much for getting one of the bad ones. Thank you. Good job. What a witch and what a horrible who would lie about this. This only makes it worse for real victims. So they fare really well. (laughs) This is like another separate finding I had was like, interesting. Okay, like the headline for Emma is I think it was something like freshman admits to making up story about rape in a parking lot or something like that. No comments were like, oh, my gosh, you know, what did the police do to her? Or Like, how'd they get a confession? It was like, oh, this is so awful. Thank you so much to the police. So I saw the misogyny in the comments a lot, and I definitely was noting that. They not only gave an arrest report to the reporters, but they did a some kind of conference where this person's on video saying, well, she lied and we arrested her and that's the message. Yeah. I don't know what's in their minds, but I can tell you that people were very happy. The story of Diane, which is depicted in the film, is incredibly sad and upsetting, although, spoiler alert here, there is an element of justice that comes at the end. Her case is one that you follow pretty closely through the appeal stage. What was it like to get to know Diane and her family, and why was it important to include her story in the film? I think it was important because it was active and it was unfolding and there's a lot of real poignance. This is a young woman who wanted to be a law enforcement officer. She really believed in the system. Her family are immigrants from Ecuador and they came to the U.S. for opportunity. And it's this real shattering of that idea that the system is safe, that the system works for you. As her father says, you do everything you're supposed to do, and still this can happen. So there was a lot of complexity in her story. This is a young woman who did believe in the system and did think law enforcement was there to help her. And it was just such a shock on every level for her family and for her. And there is real stakes. I don't want to give it away, but something happens, but it's really mixed. Right. Because anyone having to prove that they were raped or prove that they were assaulted at the end of it, if they prove that they were not lying, they're still left with the assault. Mm -hmm. They're still left with the pain. They're still left with the bill, the dropping out of school, the going home, like all of the repercussions that happen. Just getting back to zero where you're believed is so monumental and such an unnecessary waste of your emotional time. Her story just encapsulates so many things. At one point in the film, Ray, you say it can be harmful to the subject if the journalist plays an advocacy role. My role is to investigate, not to be an advocate or friend. However, clearly, you know, there's a lot of empathy on your part for these women that you're reporting on. How did you navigate those relationships and that distance between you and these women. I was really grateful that Emma got to also speak to it a little bit because she said that she just wanted someone to investigate it. She didn't want someone just to believe her right off the bat. She really wanted someone to find evidence and proof. And so I was really relieved when she said that because I understood we are on the same page completely. And I take the mantra of trust but verify. don't think there's any reason for these women to lie to me or any victim to lie to me, but certainly it's best for them if I make this an airtight story. So what I would always explain is 
I do need to verify this. And I just want you to know it's not because I don't believe you. It's because I, I have to get all my ducks in a row so that if anyone attacks the story and there will be people who want to attack it, I can say I looked into it. I, I did not just trust this person without looking into the evidence. So I think ultimately, I hope that they were all grateful for that. What kind of impact are you hoping that this reporting will have, Ray, and Nancy, this film will have? I hope that it changes the hearts and minds of people. I hope that people watch it and feel like they learned something and it was even uncomfortable at moments. That's how you grow. Yeah, I hope people really come away thinking about this a little differently. And if they see another story that comes out, I want them to FOIA their police department and ask really hard questions. And how yeah. about for you, Nancy? I know on your Roll Red Roll, you had an extensive impact campaign. How about your plans for this film? First of all, I'm just excited for Ray to be teaching everyone how to FOIA throughout the nation. I think blanket FOIAing police departments would be an incredible outcome of this. I think more of us need to know how this process works and demystifying the process of getting answers from those who are tax dollars finance their careers, right? So I'm grateful that we have that pipeline and we just need more people helping regular people figure out how to do that. So wonderful news. This film will be working with the same partners that Roll Red Roll worked with in terms of advocacy and low-hanging goals are to make sure hundreds of police departments actually watch this film. And we know that there are officers and detectives who want to do better and want to make sure there aren't serial predators on the street and want to learn from these mistakes. And we know that these trainings that Detective Hirschman does are hard to come by, you know, funding and schedules. So hopefully this film can trigger much more interest in law enforcement as it stands to do better in this realm. We want to do a screening and that's getting set up with the Department of Justice and also the White House. And for justice is to really trigger hopefully some kind of repercussion, like allowing Dr. Lisa Avalos to direct the movement in terms of if you are relying on recantation, if you are relying on the ruse technique, then your funding needs to come into question. So really trying to hold police departments accountable in whatever way possible, starting with FOIAs, ending with hopefully funding repercussions from the Department of Justice. I want to thank you both for being here. Ray, I want to thank you for your incredible and dogged reporting and Nancy for your amazing filmmaking and storytelling. I wish you both further success in bringing these issues to the public's attention and making what is surely much needed change. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us.